So this evening I want to talk about the Buddha's teaching on what is called chitta as a as a really a concept of what is chitta, why is it important, where does it fit in our in our practice, and just offering some ideas and some perspectives on this that has been uh, helpful to me. I think this is a very curious term that the Buddha uses called chitta. But first I do want to offer a little bit of a disclaimer because all schools of Buddhism talk about chitta, whether it's the, the Theravada, the Zen tradition, all the various schools of, of Tibetan Buddhism. Now, I'm, I'm assuming being out here there's probably a wide range of, of Buddhisms that might be alive in the room today. But I'm really going to be just talking from specifically from the earliest teachings that we find specifically in the Pali Canon and the earliest discourses that really are well-preserved by the Theravada tradition and really the insight tradition mostly. We talk about the Pali discourses. And also a little bit from the Abhidharma, which has been something I've been studying for about 10 years now, again, with varying degrees of success. And even uh, reaching out into the current landscape around emotions, emotional intelligence, and trying to use our Dharma practice as a way to deal with the reality of emotions in a way that's realistic and practical. So we don't develop what's now known as and uh, been a problem for some time. And I, I am certainly guilty of the spiritual bypass, uh, using my meditation practice to avoid emotions I don't want to feel. And, some, and to some degree thinking that was the point all along. <coughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> so we find, I think, in, in the Buddhist tradition, I know that I have found a very uh, a limitation around some of these, some of the terminology that we use, and trying to take something like an, uh, a, you know, really a dead language of Pali, and trying to bring that into a modern context where we're trying to respect, with some degree of accuracy, what it was this. Mr. Gautama was talking about 2,500 years ago in a way that feels uh, alive for us, that feels doable. I know that for me sometimes I always thought that the Dharma was like Star Wars. It was like a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there were enlightened beings. And I'm probably not going to be one of them. And so it can create a distance or it can create almost a, a pessimism. And also we know, I mean, it's very obvious, and we all probably know that the Buddha does talk a lot about suffering and, and pain and dukkha and all these, these terms we throw around. But not for the purpose of being focused on that, but for the purpose of being realistic about the limitations of the human experience. Just being very honest and real about ways in which we're limited not to dwell on that or to become consumed or depressed by those things. Just to be clear. And really, I think what the Buddha is talking about is how do we overcome that and how do we actually embrace our full potential? What are the possibilities of the human experience? How good can we do? How good can it get in here? How free can we be? What are the possibilities of that? And that's really one thing I love about the Eastern traditions is they're much more interested in how good people can do 
But in our sort of Western thinking, psychotherapeutic practices, we've always been focused on how bad people do and why do people do so bad. And we, we pathologize ourselves. And we derogatorize all of our seemingly not beautiful thoughts, emotions, feelings. And, and that's the world that I grew up in. I grew up in this, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? And so this, this word chitta I want to speak of, I think what it points to is how can we address the psycho-emotional behavior? One thing I love about Buddhist psychology is the Buddha actually talks about thinking in the internal experience in, in a behavioral sense. How does the mind behave? I don't know about your mind, but my mind is not always on its best behavior. <laughs> and so this word chitta, just to give us a little bit of, of description of what it, what it comes down to, is it, it, it's usually translated as heart-mind. Not that descriptive. What is the heart-mind? And in the Buddhist, early Buddhist teachings, the Buddha talks about mind in three kinds of ways. He talks about the mind in the sense of manas, which means mind, and it's the root of the word manasakara, which is attention. So he talks about the mind, and we place the mind on an object, and that's attention. Whatever we place our mind on, that's what we get. If I look over here, I get this guy. If I get look over here, I get you guys. That's just what we get. Nothing profound about it, but it is in our best interest to be able to train our attention. Also, he talks about it in this term vinyana, which is translated as consciousness, which is the apparatus, the, the aggregate systems, the feelings and the sensations and the perceptions and the inclinations. And that's really when we, when we talk about mindfulness, we become aware of what's happening in the mind. We become aware we have feelings, we have perceptions, we have movement, we things we want to do. And then he talks about chitta as this heart-mind. And I like that they got the heart-mind in there because it implies and it points us to the idea of a feeling. It's not just the mind and knowledge and the way that we kind of in our thinking typically associate Buddhism or Dharma practice with becoming wise and wisdom that somehow this is an academic pursuit or if we just knew things, if we just knew things then that would translate into some kind of happiness. And as much as I love the Buddhist teachings and, and am always curious and studying them, just because I can understand the 12 links of dependent origination did not make me any happier. <laughs> you know, it's like a lot of this stuff doesn't translate into actual happiness. So he also talks about chitta in three particular kinds of ways, which I think is important. And this comes from the Abhidharma, which was translated by Bhikkhu Bodhi. Some of you are probably familiar with him. And he talks about chitta in two ways, two of being a noun, so he talks about chitta as being an agent, that which knows. Which knows a sound as a sound, an in-breath as an in-breath, a 
taste as a taste. It's just the knower of experience. And that's good to train in that way. The more that we know what's going on, mindfulness, that tool of mindfulness, we know what is arising in our experience. It's valuable, but it doesn't necessarily translate into happiness. He talks about it as an instrument. And chitta organizes all the other mental factors. It organizes feeling and perception. And it gives us sort of a, a quick and dirty analysis as to what's going on. You know, you walk into work or you walk into any situation in life and your mind kind of tells you what's going on, right? It just says this is sort of what's going on right now. Oftentimes not very accurate. In the emotional intelligence movement, they call it the appraisal. And that in every situation in life, we just sort of appraise what's going on and the mind gives you a quick and dirty snapshot of what's going on and mostly we just believe it, right? Like, yeah, this... My wife gave me a dirty look. She's obviously mad at me about something. I probably should have taken the trash out, but why do I have to take the trash out? She never takes the trash out. (laughs) It's just like, boom, you get all this data. And a lot of the data you get is not really useful. The mind's just like, this is what we think's going on right now. And you're like, okay. Everybody is out to get me. So it just organizes that. And in, in, in perceptual theory, one of the things that we notice, and this actually comes from neuroscience, is that when we come into contact with any object, we typically project a whole bunch of stuff onto the object, or we omit. We don't really, we don't, we're not interested in it. We don't even, or we, we over, depending on the object, we overimpose or we underimpose. And then based on that, we get this, Chitta just gives you like a little status report. Yeah, this is what's going on right now, and this is the best we can do for you. <laughs> you know. And the Buddha calls people who go through their lives in this way untrained worldlings. <laughs> but you are all noble disciples, I know. Like myself. <laughs> we would never do this. We would completely evaluate the situation in a dharmic sense and respond appropriately 100% of the time. Then that's really the third sense I want to talk about, chitta. Chitta as the entire psycho-emotional process that just arises in the experience. And one thing about chitta that I love about this idea that also comes, especially from the work around a lot of trauma therapy that's being developed now, is that actually there's something nonverbal about it. And actually, when we think about the mind in, in uh, when we think of wholesome or really what I would say beautiful, there are beautiful qualities of mind. And I've noticed that the beautiful qualities of my mind are often aspects of my mind I cannot describe through language. Like, I could tell you about the sunsets we get in Paonia, and they're unbelievable but I could never actually explain it in any way that would even come close for you to just come out and check it out and just come up to my house and look at the mesas and see the sunset. I'd like, see? And you'd be like, oh, I get it now. It's beautiful. And so this is one of the things that we usually call, use the word spirituality, which is a word I'm not particularly fond of, but there's, there's something beautiful, there's something iconic, there's certain aspects of life that we know and we recognize as beautiful, but we don't really know oftentimes how to put words to it, which makes it actually so cool. 
You know, why do you love the music that you love? Why do you love the art and the poetry? All the things that you love about this world, there's something nonverbal about that that keeps us curious, that keeps us interested, that actually wakes the chitta up. It wakes the chitta up in a sense of, of gratitude or appreciation or, or a mystery. There's something here that I, I sense something here that's beautiful. I get glimpses of it, but I lose it. And then it gets reawoke, and then I lose it. And that's, I think, what we, when the Buddha talks about being awake, that's what he's talking about. So in the, in the classic sense of citta is, the goal, of course, is to awaken the heart-mind into a wholesome, I don't like the wholesome, unwholesome thing so much because I think it's too black and white. But really, in, in emotional intelligence, we talk about constructive, or the Buddha in the Abhidharma talks about beautiful. How do we awaken qualities of mind and heart that are beautiful? And how do we cultivate and sustain those qualities? And this is the whole game of chitta. But the thing about the chitta I think that's so complicated is that because it's a, a Buddhist term, chitta's not always so good. Chitta, greed, hatred, and delusion also fit in the category of chitta. Jealousy, envy, impatience, those are also types of chittas. So when we look at where it fits in mindfulness practices, the whole third foundation of mindfulness, the whole third domain of practice, mindfulness of chitta, is where the Buddha is asking us to train to recognize the presence and absence of particular qualities of mind. And here we have mental states. There's mental states of mind. There's mental attitudes. And sometimes there's emotion. We're not always emotional. Sometimes we are, as I'm sure you're aware. So the goal through mindfulness practice is to be able to recognize unwholesome or destructive attitudes and states of mind, unwholesome, destructive chitta, and let them go. Turn away from those, abandon those, sometimes he uses that language. Overcome. In the teachings on effort, he's asking us to recognize destructive states of mind and then to do something to overcome those so we don't collapse below them. Because these destructive chittas, these destructive mental states and attitudes, if unrecognized and if they gain momentum, what do they do? They fall out of our mouths. And then we say and we engage in, in, in speech and communication with other people that's hurtful. And we do. So the, the behavior in the mind becomes behavior in, in speech and then it becomes behavior in body. And of course I can't, I think we all can recognize seeing this play out on the world stage. This is how it is here. And the thing I have found to be so humbling about this practice of chitta is it actually puts me in full responsibility for how I behave, 
for how I behave in my own mind and the privacy of my own mind that nobody can see, how I behave in speech and how I behave in action. And I think the thing that makes it so hard, that's been so hard for me, is that as soon as we're born into this world, the world goes to work on our chitta. And so chitta has an affective component to it. That actually the, the, the chitta gets affected by what happens to us. So maybe my caregivers didn't provide me what I needed. I didn't get the right healthy attachment. Maybe I was abused, I was neglected, I was hurt. The thing about the chitta that's so vulnerable and really brings us right into, I think, the experience of our own humanity is our chitta is highly woundable. We are so vulnerable as people. And as we go through our lives and our our chitta kind of takes on some of that dukkha, takes on some of that pain, the world's not safe, people aren't safe, whatever perception that gives us about the world. And we oftentimes get these painful chittas that we actually don't have the capacity to hold. And when I don't have the capacity to hold it, then I strike out. I become abusive in my language. I become destructive in my behaviors. Most of my destructive behavior was self-destructive behavior through the avenues of drugs and alcohol. And it was just, you know, nobody sits us down when we're like 13 and 14 going, you know, Dave, from time to time, some difficult things are going to happen. You're going to have some emotions. You're going to have some relationships that aren't going to work out. It's going to be okay. Here's some tools and strategies on how you might be able to manage some of these experiences. Never had that conversation. (laughs) And so what happens is this is where really the greed and the hatred and the delusion, we start to try to get caught in this for no fault of our own. We start getting caught in this self-centeredness of thinking that greed, hatred, and delusion are going to protect us. Greed, I have to get what I want. I have to get more of the resources so I'm going to survive. I need to avoid all of the pain and relationships and anything that's going to hurt my chip. I need to avoid all that and resist all that. And then I'm driven by the delusion that if I could get the greed and the hatred to work out, I'd be happy. If I could just dial the greed and hatred in just right, I could get all this sorted out. And so I noticed that for me, one of the things that happened as soon as I came into practice was I was lucky enough to have a Dharma teacher sit down and actually explain all of this to me. And I was like, yeah, my shit is like really banged up, man. I'm hurting. And it was like, and, and I got the sense that I wasn't the only one who had that experience. And that actually, the thing that was most, I think that is most, one of the most attractive ideas of the Dharma is that you actually can do something about that. You can do something about that. You can overcome everything. Everything that's happened. 
And so we find that the, the, the chitta is affected. And we all have our stories, and we all get our varying degrees of that, some worse than others, but it's all, you know, it's like suffering. Nobody gets out with getting a little bit on you. You know, it's like, ugh. Can't seem to get it off. As soon as I get it off, I get more on. That's the world. That's life. It's messy. And then we start to see that actually we have a capacity to hold. And I think this is really where Dharma practice and mindfulness and sitting practice and being on retreat is we're learning that we actually can hold and we can tolerate a lot more than we thought. We start to see actually the paradox that I have found is that the, the, the strength of the heart actually lies in its weakness. And that the, the heart can take, you know, there's a sense of heartbreak, we all know that analogy, but there's also this way in which we can break the heart open into being free. And so we sit and we practice and we cultivate awareness, we cultivate mindfulness, we cultivate kindness and compassion, and, 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 and the heart's like in there doing push-ups. And it's getting stronger, we start to see we're able to hold. We're able to hold our own experience. We're able to empathize with other humans and, 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 and start comparing notes. Being like, wow, you too, huh? No idea. You know, and then, and then that sense of transparency and the ability to connect with other people and see that we all go through it. When I used to teach compassion exercises to teenagers, I used to use this little rhyme of empathy, just like me. Oh, just like you too? Oh, really? Yeah, that happened to me too. Oh, whew, that I was the only one. And then we get into this, this strategy of actually now we can understand the affective quality of chitta. We can hold that and now we can respond. So the chitta actually has all three of those components. It's affected by experience. It can learn to hold experience. And then it can learn to respond. There's a responsive component to chitta. And I think one of the things that I've noticed that I've struggled with and many of the students I've worked with over the years, I think kind of maybe the numero uno, is that we have a hard time when we see some of the aspects of our not so beautiful or wholesome chitta. Sometimes we can get caught into the trap, the very dangerous trap of thinking that somehow we're bad or wrong for having these attitudes of mind, having these mental states. We see aspects of hatred in all of the different ways it plays out, whether it's envy or jealousy or blaming or revenge, all of that kind of internal, internal violence. It's really important that we can see that and recognize that there's nothing wrong or bad about us for having these kinds of experiences. And in, in the practice of the third foundation, for me, that's been the most important distinction to make. 
And the Buddha is very clear about this. He's just asking us to recognize the presence and absence of particular qualities. And if he's asking us to recognize the presence, he's probably assuming that we're going to see some of it. And this is where that spiritual bypassing can come. It's like, I don't have any. I don't think any negative thoughts about people. I totally have radiate metta towards all the political figures of the time. (laughs) No problem. We're not supposed to have that. So it's been very important for me as a practitioner and a teacher to really just encourage a degree of transparency about just being honest about some of the difficulties that we see when we really turn inward. You know, when we see the, the sense of violence or the sense of judgment or, or criticism. It's like these experiences, just, they just arise. As I said earlier, it's just the mind's just giving you a quick appraisal. It's like, yeah, well, that person's they're a difficult person, they're just a bad person, and they just need to go away. And you're like, wait a minute here, like, you know, one person's behavior in one moment does not sum the entirety of who they are. Nor is that true about ourselves. And this is where emotion becomes very challenging. I want to say some words about emotion. Because if I'm honest, truth be told, of all the suffering that I experience in my life, it's always emotional. Like, me and my mind are pretty good. Like, I feel pretty friendly with my mind. It does a whole bunch of things I'm not happy about, but, like, we're pretty cool. My body, I've been lucky, my body's pretty, pretty okay. But when I get, when I feel sad, or if I feel like undervalued, or if I get disappointed, or I feel like I'm gonna disappoint you, oh my God, what a mess. And unfortunately, there's no uh, Buddhist terminology, there's no word that specifically points to emotion, although chitta does definitely encompass what we know as or what we would think about emotion. And so when we start to, and the other thing is, of course, we're not always emotional. It's not like in mindfulness practice where you're clocking moment-to-moment experience. Emotion's not there. And one thing I've noticed that makes it really hard is when I go on retreat, when I sit for 45 minutes at my house in the morning, I don't have very many emotions come up. You know who the number one emotional trigger is on the planet? other people, and primarily the other people that I actually care about. Some stranger on the street gives me a dirty look or does something, I don't even care. My five-year-old son gives me a dirty look, devastates me. I'm like, oh my God, I don't think he likes me. It's like, of course he doesn't like me. I didn't let him have a popsicle at seven in the morning. And he's like, dude, you're basically a bad person. And I'm just like, I am. I should just give him the popsicle. Maybe he'll like me. Then I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) These emotions, they're messy. And one of the ways that I like to offer Dharma communities and people who practice mindfulness around some languaging around emotions that's been very helpful is we have to be very careful, actually, that we don't use these categories of negative and positive, like negative emotions and positive emotions. 
which is so hard not to do. Because emotions actually have no qualitative, ethical, moral value whatsoever. It's what we do when the emotion is present. Like anger is not, there's nothing wrong with anger. Evolution gave you anger. You actually need anger to do stuff. That's how you remove obstacles. So we have to look at these emotions through the lens of do I have a constructive relationship to the emotion or a destructive relationship? And I actually like to pull that terminology into my mindfulness practice instead of using like wholesome mind states and unwholesome mind states. Is is constructive and destructive? Like is what am I doing what I'm doing in my mind right now, is this constructive? Is this moving in the way of cooperation? Is this useful to myself or to others? Or not? Or is it destructive? And destructive is usually characterized by a sense of I'm unwilling to cooperate in this moment. I'm not, I, I ain't doing the painful knee sit again. I ain't doing the, that sort of we cut off. And we would call those in classic mindfulness hindrances. The hindrances are destructive because they don't work. And so we want to, I, I shouldn't say we want to, I find it very helpful to change some of the language around so that way we can have a more optimistic and realistic view towards trying to develop and to cultivate and to respond in a constructive way with our chitta. And there's a whole boatload of qualities, generosity and patience and kindness and friendliness and being open and flexible and available. There's a whole drop-down menu of beautiful chittas. You know, so the, the, the challenge, of course, here, I find, is that it's, the Buddha is asking us to incline in that way regardless of whose fault it was, regardless of all of that blaming, and they should be different, they should know better. Who are they anyway? You know those people? You know what I'm talking about, right? You know you, the category in your mind of those people? Who are they? I haven't even met any of them. Maybe they're having a hard time too. Maybe they're as confused as us. And so that sense of not, that, that, that uncooperativeness, the pushing away, that aversion, that is typically a signal of, of a, a destructive or not a really useful thing to cultivate. And I don't know about you, but when I really watch my mind, I, I, I see this a lot. I got a lot of not wanting things to be the way they are. Every day. And I, I, I try to allow that to become more of a check engine light to my Dharma practice of like, do you really want to encourage the not wanting it to be like this? This is not going in a good direction. Because even if I'm right, I'm wrong. <laughs> then I gotta go convince all of you I'm like right it totally shouldn't be like this right and you're like definitely not you're right dude and then I go rallying I interview everybody in the room be like I went to Durango and everybody agreed with me <laughs> you need to be different <laughs> yeah. I do this and so being able to from a practice perspective off of the cushion 
as I used to like to say to people after living in LA, is that you should always take the high road because there's no traffic. <laughs> there's nobody up there. It's just you, 70 miles an hour. Don't go down there. And I think actually having some humor is helpful because when we are really being, I think, realistic and honest about the mind and how it operates, we find some pretty, pretty ridiculous things going on. So I do want to save some time. These days it goes by so fast. I uh, want to save some time for some questions. If you have any questions about the instructions or this topic of chitta, I'd be happy to hear what they are. And thank you for your attention. <laughs>